Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Vox Tablet. It's me, your host, Sarah Ivory. Today, we're talking about Job. Most of you know the basic thrust of the biblical story of Job. He's a guy whose life seems pretty damn good. He's prosperous. He's got a really big family, seven sons and three daughters. All seems great. And then things go bad. His livestock, and he has a huge number of them, are stolen or they're killed. His children die, every single one of them. He loses everything. Then he has a heated exchange with three friends who've come to comfort him. And then he has an encounter with the divine. Now, what I just gave you is a pretty simple explanation of the biblical story. Its resonance through the ages has been profound for both Jews and non-Jews who've grappled with the nature of evil and bad luck and have asked themselves, what on earth did I do to deserve this? There's one man besides Job who's famously wrestled with this question. That's Rabbi Harold Kushner. He first did so 30 years ago in a best-selling book called When Bad Things Happen to Good People. Now Kushner is tackling Job in a new book from Next Book Press in Shokin. Rabbi Kushner joins us on the podcast today to talk about Job and about how he and we cope with grave misfortune. Rabbi Kushner, welcome to Vox Tablet. Thank you very much, Sarah. It's nice to be talking to you. Now, a lot of listeners might not uh, be familiar with what led you originally to explore the question of why bad things happen to good and moral people. Um, For people who don't know the story, I wonder if you could briefly uh, fill them in. My wife and I had a child who was stricken with one of the rarest diseases known. It's called progeria, the the rapid aging syndrome. It meant that when he was about three years old, he stopped growing and started to grow old. We knew from the time he was three that he would not live much beyond his teens. We wondered if we'd ever see him as bar mitzvah. We did, and then he died the day after his 14th birthday. For all those years when we wondered how long we would have him, I have to ask myself why this was happening. First of all, my family were probably the most committed Jews in our town. I worked day and night to get people to give themselves to religion, to God, to observance, to being more charitable. And even if I wasn't good enough and even if I deserved to be punished, why would God take it out on an innocent child? It didn't make sense. I'd been a rabbi for a few years before Aaron was diagnosed, and when I had to face the death of a teenager in a car accident, the death of a young person, I would say, we can't understand it. We have to believe and have the faith that God knows what he's doing. When we confronted that personally, I could no longer say that. I had to come up with some sort of answer. And the answer I came up with and the answer I used counseling people and speaking at funerals was the one I wrote about in When Bad Things Happen to Good People. In a sentence, what I suggested was, if we have to choose between an all-powerful God who is not good and fair or a totally good and fair God who is awesomely powerful but not totally powerful, where did we get the notion that we flatter God by emphasizing his power at the extent of his goodness? Why are we worshiping power? So I suggested that there are some areas of life that God does not control. Human choice between doing good and doing evil is one of them. Laws of nature, laws of science, laws of physics are another one. No matter how good a person you are, lean too far out of a window and you will fall to the ground and be seriously injured. No matter how good a person you are, if somebody wants to rob you, he will rob you. Those things God can't prevent. What is God's role? I've taken to saying this. A religiously committed life 
doesn't insure you against bad things happening. It insures you against having your faith and your sense of self destroyed when bad things happen. It gives you the assurance that God is not doing this to you. God is on your side. And I found religious support for this in my reading of the book of Job. So obviously the story of Job, I mean, the themes of Job are ones that you've lived with for decades now. As you set to writing this book, the book of Job, When Bad Things Happen to a Good Person, this is the name of the new next book book, what, uh, if anything, shifted in your understanding of the story of Job? Well, first of all, my studies of Bible led me to the conclusion that the first chapter of Job, the first two chapters, are about a man who suffers and does not complain. And that's as far as some people ever get in the book. They read about this wager that God has with Satan. Let's subject Job to the most awful fate imaginable and see if he gives up his belief in you. He doesn't, and he's rewarded. If you only read that far, you would be entitled to say, this is a piece of garbage. I don't believe that, and just put the book away. And a lot of people never get beyond chapter 2. The other reason they don't get beyond it is the next 37 chapters are almost impossible to understand. <laughs> uh, they are written in a very dense poetic style. I, I compare it to a college philosophy text written in the style of Shakespearean tragedy. So a lot of people look at the poetry and they give up. The fact is, about 2,500 years ago, somebody read the first two chapters of Job, which must have been in circulation as an ancient folktale, and said, who wants to believe that about God? Who wants to believe in a God that is so vain he will go around humiliating and hurting people just to see if they will protest? And he wrote this incredibly profound poem in which Job does challenge God. Job does protest. Job does say, this is not fair. Tell me why I deserve this. And his three friends come and they try and defend God. And to his immense credit, the author has this rare capacity to give the friends as much articulateness, as much depth as he gives Job. They are not caricatures. They're not straw men. There is a real debate going on here. There is nothing like this in the entire Bible. There is nothing like this in ancient literature at all. It is a serious, no-holds-barred debate between some very thoughtful people choosing their words carefully about God's role in our lives. And it's marvelous. So just to be clear, the book of Job is actually two sort of texts. It's a fable in the beginning, and then it's it's this long-form poem in the middle, and then it's bookended by the end of the fable. And the uh, the tone or the forms of prose differ between the fable and the poem. Oh, it's very clear that they're written by two different authors in two different uh, epochs. So when you uh, revisit this book time and again— are there new things that stand out to you either in your reading or in your self-understanding about your uh, relationship to the nature of good and evil in the world? Yes, I uh, I found the author putting into words something I kind of inchoately believed. There's one dialogue in the book between Job and one of his friends where the friends say, where the the friend says Job, do you realize you are undermining the whole basis for religion? People don't go to church and synagogue for a theology seminar. 
They don't go to learn facts about God. They go to be reassured that we have a loving Father in heaven who will take care of us and reward us. That's what makes it possible for us to go to sleep at night. That's what makes it possible for us to bring children into the world. That's what makes it possible to sacrifice in order to do what's right rather than what is wrong. And you're going to take that away from us on the basis of your atypical experiences in one week? That's simply not fair. You're hurting people. And Job's answer, and no matter how often I read it, Sarah, I am thrilled by this. Job's answer is, I will not lie to God, and I will not lie about God. If God is as great as you say he is, he will respect my honesty more than your flattery. Yeah, that's a compelling point that you make in the book, that the most intimate and loving relationships we have are ones in which we feel it's okay to express our anger that can coexist with our love for those with whom we're intimate, whether that is God or a family member or a lover, what have you. Oh, absolutely. Anger has to be part of any honest relationship. I heard a brilliant Bible scholar, Aviva Zornberg of Jerusalem, once point out that Only after Moses complains about God in the book of Deuteronomy, God has treated me unfairly. And only after he has given the Israelites permission to voice their anger about God, only then do we read for the first time, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Because if you're afraid to express the fact that you're disappointed in God, that sometimes you're angry at God, that sometimes you doubt God, if you're afraid to say that because you think it shatters the relationship, you're not being honest. You can only pretend to love. The freedom to be able to question, to challenge, to wonder, that has to be part of any honest relationship. And to the author's credit, he gives us a man who is truly religious, not because every time something bad happens, he said, well, it's God's will, but because he says, I don't like this, I challenge it, I don't understand it, I think it's wrong, but I want to have this relationship with God, so I wish he would just show up and tell me what I'm doing. Let's talk a little bit about that uh conversation that Job has with his three friends. They've come to console him in the wake of his calamities, and their efforts do devolve into basically arguments. What is at the core of the disagreement? Well, first of all, they don't start out arguing. Uh, Again, it's a tribute to the genius of the author that he very carefully calibrates what the friends have to say. It comes in three cycles. Cycle one, they say to Job, we feel terrible about what's happening to you, but Try and understand, you're basically a good person. God is righteous. We've got to believe this is the middle of the story, not the end of the story, and in the end, everything will work out fine. They expect Job, when they finish, to hug them and say, thank you, I needed to hear that. They expect Job to be comforted. They're baffled when he isn't. That's round one. Round two, instead of saying, what's wrong with us that we're not making our case clear, In round two, they start to say, what's wrong with Job that he can't see the rightness of what we're saying? And the exchanges get a little bit sharper. And in round three, they say, Job, you are talking like a terrible person. You are talking like a total atheist. No wonder God is punishing you. If I were God, I would do as much or more to you. So 
gradually the argument escalates. In the beginning, they don't want to argue theology. They have not come to improve his theology. They've come because a friend has been struck with bereavement and illness, and they want to comfort him. The poem of the book of Job culminates when God appears in a whirlwind to address Job directly. And the first half of God's response seems rather peevish and a little bit defensive. Tell readers how he responds. Well, first of all, I have to explain why he responds. Okay. Job has been saying for 36 chapters, you know, if I can only talk to God or if I can only listen to God, I want him to tell me what I'm doing wrong. How should I live differently so that I don't think these things don't happen to me? And he can't get God to respond. This, I think this is an original insight on my part. I have not found this in any of the commentaries on Job I've consulted. How does Job get God to answer? There is a law in the Torah, in the book of Exodus, I think it's Parshat Mishpatim. Your neighbor is going on vacation and asks you to keep an eye on his property, his animals, whatever it is. You say you'll do your best. You do your best, but despite your best efforts, somebody breaks in and robs his house, somebody rustles his sheep. He comes back, he wants to know what happened, and he's not above suspecting you of taking it for yourself. Having the court decide not guilty in the absence of evidence will not satisfy him. He's going to be looking strangely at you for the rest of the time, your neighbors. The Torah provides the following solution. If you take an oath in the name of God that you have not touched anything that was not yours, he is compelled either to take your word for it or to provide evidence to the contrary. If he has no evidence, he's got to drop the case and never allude to it again. I think, and this is a stroke of genius on the author's part, in chapter 31, which is Job's oath of innocence, he says, I swear, and and this is so great, listen to this, I swear in the name of the God who has badly used me, I swear in the name of God who has betrayed me, I have never taken anything that didn't belong to me. I have never betrayed my marriage vows. I've never even looked lustfully on an unmarried woman. I've never turned a beggar away uh, empty-handed. I've never refused to share my food with the needy. What is he doing? He is saying to God, I swear by your name I have not done anything that deserves this. Ball's in your court now, Mr. God. (laughs) You show me the evidence or you admit that I'm right and you're wrong. And at that point, God is compelled by his own law of the Torah to appear. But, and this was your question, Sarah, when God does appear in chapter 40, he doesn't come down to answer Job's questions. The first thing he says, in effect, is, uh, I'll ask the questions around here. And his first question is, where were you when I created the world? That is, he says, Job, you and I are not equals. Let's forget about that. This is not two parties, two neighbors in a court of law. You've finagled me to have to come down and explain myself. I'm not going to explain myself. I created the world that I wanted. That's the first half. Job then apologizes and said, I spoke of things I did not understand. I had heard of you but through my ears, but now that I have seen you, I retract everything I said. That's not the end of the book. A lot of people think that's the end of the book. What has happened is that it's not the content of what God said. God has not refuted anything Job said. God has not answered any of his questions. He's overwhelmed him. And as I understand it, it's the contact with God. Having met God, 
is very different from having learned about God. Martin Buber has this wonderful distinction between theology, which is talking about God, and religion, which is experiencing God. Job goes through the whole transition. Thirty chapters worth, they argue about God. When God appears, all of a sudden those questions are dispelled. He has met God and nothing is the same. But God hasn't really explained himself. There is a second speech by God, and this is the crux of the book, and I wish it were easier to understand. (laughs) God, having talked about how he created all these animals, the ones that are useful to man and the ones that are useless, I mean, who needs ostriches and eagles and stuff like that? Who needs spiders? In the second half, God talks about two mythical creatures, the behemoth, the super ox, and the leviathan, the super sea dragon. I read into this, and you know, I, I will readily confess I am guilty of what every critic of Job does. I look into the book, and it's a mirror reflecting my own face back to me. I find in it that the author, what do you know, agrees with what I believe. <laughs> what I find God saying is, Behemoth and Leviathan, the, the bull and the crocodile, the sea dragon, they, cause a lot, they mess up my world. They cause a lot of problems in my world, but I need them. I need them for this to be the kind of world I want. The the bull represents to me what Sigmund Freud called the id, the life force. Some of it is sexuality, causes all kinds of problems. I don't have to spell that in. But would you want a world without it, without love, without marriage, without children? Some of it is anger. And, you know, we people go postal, people get angry and shoot people and and do terrible things. But without anger, would we have ended slavery? Would we have ended the, uh, you know, the terrible persecution of of, uh, racial segregation? Would we be working now to end the discrimination against the disabled, against gays, against women? No, a certain amount of anger, righteous indignation is a healthy part of the world, but it gets out of control and it harms people. That's the bull. God needs that kind of drive. There's this wonderful story in the Talmud about the day that they captured the evil impulse and locked it up, and they said, it's great. From now on, our world will be paradise. Nobody will do anything selfish. The next day, nobody opened a store for business. Nobody bought anything. Nobody sold anything. Nobody got married, and no babies were conceived because all of those things have an element of selfishness in them. Mm-hmm. Take away that element of selfishness, which is so prone to misuse, the world can't exist. The sea dragon is the principle of chaos. Why does a hurricane hit New Orleans instead of spinning off into the Gulf? Why does an earthquake strike a city instead of a desert? That's chaos. There are rules for it. It follows the laws of physics, of thermodynamics, of tectonic plates, of all these things I don't understand. But it's not God's purpose to punish New Orleans, whatever some preachers might have said. And God says there's an element of chaos, an element of randomness. Who gets born sick and who gets born healthy and who gets born athletically gifted and then gets paid $20 million a year for playing a game? That's, that's a matter of chance. And all God can do is say, I can't control that. All I can be, do is be with you as you deal with the miscalculations of chance. Rabbi Kushner, we'll leave it at that. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure, Sarah. Rabbi Harold Kushner is the author of The Book of Job, When Bad Things Happened to a Good Person. It's out now from Next Book's Jewish Encounter series, which is published in partnership with Shock and Books. 
You can find out more about this book and about all the titles in the Jewish Encounter series on our website, tabletmag.com. We always want to know what you think of our podcast, so don't be shy. Send us an email at podcast at tabletmag.com or simply go ahead and post a comment on our website. Vox Tablet is produced by Julie Subrin. I'm your host, Sarah Ivory. Thank you so much for joining us.